Welcome to Real Native Roots, Untold Stories, a podcast by a Native woman with deep roots. Good morning, good afternoon, good day, whenever you're listening to this, and Happy New Year. Yes, we survived 2020, and man, was 2020 all sorts of emotions for us, right? We're still in it, so I just send you blessings, I send you love, I send you grace, and also in this in this time, health, physically, mentally, spiritually, in just hopes that you find the right sort of equilibrium in your life. And that's always a balancing act in what we're managing on a day-to-day, you know, with children at home, with school, with work, our animals, there's just so much going on relatives. And so just give yourself some grace at this time. And again, happy new year. I am really excited about 2021's guest lineup. I can't wait to introduce our guest today. I want to just say again, I will continuously be grateful to you all. Thank you so much for your support in in supporting the first year, we completed, as you know, last year, which was sort of an experiment, and I just fell more and more in love with this love project. The past, I'd say, two, three weeks, I've noticed an increase in followers, so thank you for the new followers, and um, I'm just, yeah, I'm super just grateful for you all, so thank you for that. I decided this year <clears throat> to continue to do one podcast a month. Folks were suggesting two a month, and I'm like, eh, I have my day job too. <laughs> so I want to stay in love with this project, so I decided to just do once a month. However, I am going to do bonuses. So I do have a bonus track ready to release, and I'll probably release that after today's um, podcast. So I'm looking forward to seeing what you all think of that. Let's see. So If you all hadn't had a chance to listen to the last podcast, which was December of 2020, I had a beautiful guest on, and it was on one of my favorite topics, which is music. Oh, I love music. I have to listen to a little bit of music every day to keep my vibes up. And today's topic is another favorite. I enjoy uh, eating. I enjoy cooking. As you all know, on my little Instagram or Facebook stories, I'm always showing you what I'm cooking. So today's topic is a little bit about that and more and more and more and more. So I wanted to um, introduce you to who our guest is on our episode today. I always let you all know how I find these gems, <laughs> these individuals. And so it, it was actually through a mutual friend of ours. Uh, my friend had uh, mentioned him, I don't know, maybe four years ago, something like that. We were working on a project and he had just mentioned, I'm like, oh, I've never heard of that gentleman. And then uh, this past October, we did this food forum and um, my guest was actually one of the speakers. And so I'm like, oh, I, you know, I, and actually between that, I had reached out when my friend said, you should, you should have him on there. So I reached out and, you know, 2020 is sort of crazy busy and we're just on the internet all the time. 
Anyway, long story short, I saw him present in October and my mind was like blown. I was like, whoa, (laughs) what did I just hear? Like I heard so much going on in that one hour and I, I circled back again and I emailed him. I'm like, hey, I reached out. Now that you know who I am, not some stranger, oh, stranger danger, right? I go, now that you know who I am, I would love for you to be on the podcast. And he said, yeah, absolutely. So, you know, that's sort of how I, I knew of him. But when I really saw him, I was like, oh, my gosh, we've got to have him on here. Our people need to hear him, They, you know, more and more people because what I've learned in my brief interactions with him is that he's so down to earth, like he's real, you know, talk about real, raw, normal. This guy is real, raw, normal. And, you know, he's very persistent as I, is one of the values that I see in his story. Also this power of vision, you know, he very visionary and really stays on that path of what he wants, regardless of how many, uh, you know, uh, downfalls or lessons learned that he's had. He's really stays persistent on the vision that he has. One thing that I appreciate about connecting with him and learning about him, he, you know, clearly uh, is very, he stays rooted. And as he, he says, I am, you know, he didn't say this, but to some degree he did. He's like, I'm not a poser, you know, like I'm going to do what I'm going to do. So he's uh, he's a little rough around the edges in the sense of how he grew up with humble beginnings, yet, you know, still was able to sort of um, navigate in different spaces. I'm just really pleased that I now have a new friend. I, you know, really respect him and what he's done. So my friend here, he's Apache and Dana. You know, he's had 23 years in working in the food industry and culinary and worked in greasy, what's he called, greasy spoons to really fine dining. He's also created an, an association, and we'll have him talk a little bit about that, uh, Native American Culinary Association, I believe. He's actually, you know, ha- has been in a number of publications in Forbes magazine, Food and Wine. Um, he's done a-, a-, a blog. He's definitely just like a badass. He's an advocate for our people, for our land, for our food, and for making things happen. So without further ado, I'd love for you all to meet my new friend, Chef Nephi Craig. Hi, Hello. Hello. Good morning. Thank you for having me on. Yeah. Good morning. How do you say that in um, your language in Apache? Maybe it's similar. I know it's similar. Like, yat e bene? Well, the way I've heard it is kuzonski. Interesting. There's similarities, but definitely differences, right? Yeah. So let's get started. You know, uh, I appreciate you being on here again. Thank you. And I know that your home, you have two homes that you, you um, state, I've, you know, from White Mountain and also um, the, Na- you know, the Navajo lands. And so tell us a little bit about your upbringing, uh, home and your younger days. Yeah, okay. Well, uh, I was I was born on the White Mountain Apache tribe, and I was born in uh, 1980. And uh, my mother is uh, Maridi Craig from uh, from White River, and our, our family clan is uh, Bishtun from Mount Sibiqui. 
And uh, my, my late father is from the eastern part of the Navajo Nation, from Crown Point, New Mexico. Uh, my late father, Vincent Craig. Um, so we, I grew up in White River until I was about 10 years old. And, uh, you know, of course, we traveled back and forth, going from White River to Crown Point or to Window Rock to see other family. Um, so I got a pretty good uh, mixture of both Apache land and, and Navajo growing up. So I'm, I'm very, uh, a lot of my, a lot of my early memories of, uh, Dineta include my dad and, um, relatives telling us stories and, you know, learning about, uh, stink bug tricking coyote and the, the monsters that live in the rocks and, you know, and all these really cool, colorful stories that, that just make Dineta seem so amazing as well. So, um, I grew up here in White River till about 1990. And then uh, we moved out to the Navajo Nation uh, from 90, 91 until 98, where I graduated from high school in Window Rock. But it's definitely been, for me, jumping back and forth my whole life. And then later in my adult life, I'd return to the White Mountains. That's where I'm at now. Wonderful. And it's beautiful up there in White Mountain with all the trees. And it's gorgeous. It's been a while since I've been yeah, up there. It's really, it's really a, an amazing place when you're, you know, how when you're a kid, you kind of take your environment for granted and then, um, you get older. And at least for me, I, I got older and, and, um, you know, and on the journey of native food, they began to study a little bit more about my own history, uh, Navajo and Apache. And then just coming here, you know, I, I often, I often still have this reflective thought, like the color of the trees and the color of the mountains and everything are the same colors my ancestors saw, you know, it's kind of. Mm. Kind of cool. I like to visualize it like that. Oh, it's beautiful. Yes, absolutely. So talking about food, I mean, that's the main reason why I wanted to bring you on here is seems like, you know, native culinary, native food, it's really blowing up. You know, it has, I think in the past, I would say 10 years, um, like it's been at this incline, right? In terms of people being more aware folks being more curious about the medicinal uses as well, you know, of like the herbs and how we drink a lot of that with tea. So I I wanted to kind of go back and if you can share a little bit about your trajectory from leaving, you know, I think you started like when you were 18 years old and, you know, I know, I know we only have 45 minutes, but still like maybe a snapshot of what you've learned, um, maybe even from like your grandmother, your mother, how it all started, like this interest in in cooking and what you appreciate about it and how it led you to where you're at now. Okay. Um, um, well, I, I like you said, I began when I was just out of high school, but my actually, me actually cooking, it, it began way, uh, much earlier. Uh, my my earliest food memories that I that are my own come from when I was in preschool and when my parents were living in Tempe. And I was at a small little preschool and it only had a couple students. My teacher was named Don, and we were baking we were baking muffins of some sort. I remember she explaining to us in, in the small class that you know uh, cooking and baking were like art and science. And to me, as a little kid, for some reason, that really stuck. And it really, um, really resounded, and it's resounded my whole entire life. And the deeper I've gotten into to food and cooking, I've been able to use that memory and uh, make the example that it is art and science. It's, it's this amazing journey and process. But 
So I've been cooking since I was a little kid when I was in the, in, in, in the early eighties in my neighborhood in White River, Arizona. My neighborhood is called Whiskey Flats. And, uh, when my parents were young, my, my father was away in, in school in Albuquerque and my mother, my brother and I were in White River holding it down there. And, um, you know, as just as kind of a fun activity or to earn some extra money, my mom and I would bake uh, cookies and brownies and I'd portion them up in bags and load them in my wagon and walk down the street in my, my little neighborhood and, and sell cookies and brownies, you know. And to me, that was really cool because it was something that I liked, like the practice and using my hands and cook, baking something and then, you know, selling selling it all and coming back with a bunch of change and some money, you know. It was <laughs> my first experience being able to 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 earn out of something I thought was real fun. So I would just keep doing that as a kid and throughout middle school and high school. And as a kid in high school in Window Rock, you know, I was into English and uh, video productions, and I really liked my science classes and my art class. But my main, like, purpose for living <laughs> in, in high school was to skate, you know, to be a skateboarder. So I didn't really apply myself. You know, I, I, I um, you know, just kind of lived to skate and, and party and do all the typical things that um, didn't really um, get good results. Uh, academically so when it came down to graduation and and making decisions for myself I didn't really know I didn't feel like I had the option of of, um, going to a a college you know or anything like that so I just kind of had to make a decision like what am I going to do with my life I I decided I would take a year off and and you know that that BS didn't work out well for me you know so I yeah I started working construction with my brother in Phoenix and I was installing air conditioning units and had a good crew and all that. And it was cool, but you know, there was, there had to be something more. So I didn't really know what, what to choose. I wanted to do something in English or video or photography. I wanted to do something in art. Um, I wanted to be able to do something that allowed me to use one of what I was interested in. But when it came down to, it, I just decided it was like, all right, what, what have I been doing the most longest? And kind of from where I was at, it was, it was cooking. And, you know, prior to graduating high school, this was in the, you know, 96, 97, 98, there was no food network. There was no social media. There was none of that, um, hyper connectivity that we have now. And the only exposure I had to world cuisine or the world of chefs was the, uh, the show, um, great chefs of the world on the discovery channel. And I used to watch that and I used to think, man, I could probably do that. That's pretty cool. You know, they, they got these cool different types of knives and they're doing all this artful stuff. And, you know, I, I always have a pocket knife and matches or a lighter on me. And, <laughs> and so I feel like I could whittle, you know, like mm-hmm. I, can, I can carve things. And so I just decided I've been cooking my, I've been cooking the longest. So I'm going to go to cooking school. And I had no, no idea, no idea what it would be like. I didn't know that there was a whole universe of, of world cuisine and chefs and everything. And so that's, that's how I decided to go. Um, but I, I was also very fortunate that culinary school wasn't my only introduction. The school I, w- I went to had a, had a job fair. And at that job fair, I was applying at all these booths, um, just handing out applications, uh, filling out applications at all the local resorts in Phoenix. And one in particular, um, I, re- I recall talking to the chef of the country club at DC Ranch, the chef there seemed happy and he was a big tall guy and um I just told him I was a student, I was looking for work. And um I ended up getting hired at that place at the country club at DC Ranch with uh, Chef Chris Olson. 
I didn't know then that it was a really that the chefs I was working with were really well trained and well traveled. I just assumed that you know all cooking jobs were like that. So I was taking 17 credit hours in the daytime and then working a full time job at night. One area of my life was theory and application in school, and then you know the after school I'd be you know going to going to work and work with some some chefs and get my ass kicked every night and yell at and scream at and learning trial by fire. You know, <laughs> like. It, it was it was pretty cool, so that's that's kind of how it began. And there was there were many more uh, benchmarks after that, but that's kind of the, the startup. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I remember you saying a little bit about um, during that time you were really curious about like native cuisine, like what is that? You know, wanting to know does it exist. Can you define for folks a little bit about what that is, maybe at the time, and how do you define that now? Yeah, okay. Um, see, as, as a kid, that, that I grew up in White River, and I grew up in, uh, in the Navajo Nation, too. I uh, was fortunate that um, I got to travel around a little bit in the Southwest with my dad, Vincent. And, um, you know, we'd, he'd do his singing and songwriting, and we'd go to places, and, there, you know, they'd be like, it was like law conferences or health conferences, and you know we'd have you know get to expose get get exposed to different foods sometimes. And so when I uh, um, when I got into culinary school, I had, I had I already had an open mind to try new food, and plus I loved cooking. But I also was really curious, like is is there is it possible to do something? You know, after after getting this brief introduction to world cuisine, um, the history of it, I began to realize right away that. You know, natives, we have something to offer. You know, what is it? What does that mean? Is there is there a title? Has somebody defined it? Have we defined it? Kind of thinking, you know, my my my, you know, naturally as a 18 year old kid, I just went to my uh, my chef instructor, who was very, being a very impressionable young person. I just walked up to him and said, "Hey, chef, man, is, is there is there such thing as a Native American cuisine?" and the response I got from from my instructor was it was a dismissive response. It wasn't an angry one, but it was kind of like he's just like, ah, I know, I know you boil stew and you make fry bread, you know. Then I was like, you ever have fry bread? He's like, yeah. I said, you like it? He's like, nah. He made his like kind of funny face, you know. Then I was, I was to me the message I got from that interaction was you know, um, it's not up to par or don't bring it up kind of attitude. But it also kind of pissed me off to where I was like. You know, it's like, all right, well, you don't know nothing, you know, like, mm-hmm. and so being left out of world cuisine and the curriculum and then being misunderstood from a, from another professional chef um, or from a professional chef, it, uh, it planted to see that, you know, there's got to be something more. I decided early on that, uh, but basically I wanted to study and work with a native chef someday. I wanted to get my classical training and get the, you know, just get in and out of school and work for a couple of years and then find a native chef that I could work for or work under a train. So because that's what I kind of felt deep down, I just decided that, all right, I'm going to go ahead and, and devote my life to this. I'm going to do this long enough to where I can, you know, I'll be a chef someday that will be able to be that mentor. But in the meantime, I'm going to, I'm going to start something where we can, or we need something where we can share our experiences. So that was kind of the seed idea. And so fast forwarding to, you know, 23 years into my, my path as a cook, I feel like Native American cuisine is, is very micro-regional. <clears throat> I guess to kind of give a, a real general analogy or comparison, it would kind of be like the cuisines of Asia. 
like all of Asia, right? From China to Vietnam to Singapore to all the multitude of countries across Asia and how the cuisines vary from region to region, just like the dialect. It's very similar in Native America. It's not just North America, but we're talking South America, Mexico, North America, and Canada, you know, Alaska. So it's really difficult. It's a big answer, but I think the commonality and the common thread is that as Natives working doing the food work, we're all experiencing this this generation of reclamation and recovery, and that's one of the, the strengths of our Native cuisines as they return or come back to us, so to speak is that we're all using the food to reconnect with our identity and our land, piecing the puzzle together after, you know, a five, 600-year violent interruption of our, of our life ways and our food ways. So native food and native cuisine, to me, it represents each region and each group of people. It's very powerful and it's very intimate. And then it's also very fun. I feel like I often in my teaching, I always use the analogy that a single kernel of corn is like a microchip or like a like a SIM card. And the indigenous people are the devices that it fits perfectly in, right? <laughs> like like and if you really kind of use that analogy thinking, all right, if if one kernel of corn is a microchip, what is the data? You know, what kind of data is stored in a single kernel of corn? Well, we're talking agriculture, we're talking history, we're talking companion planting. We're talking ceremony, songs. We're, we're talking connection to the stars, you know, and so much more. We're talking so much more just packed into one little kernel of corn. And so, and then you take it even farther, it's like, where does that data come from, you know? And Western science will tell us it's photosynthesis, you know, it's coming from the sun. And so it's coming from the universe. So it, it's pretty cool, you know, you can really kind of trace back so much just by following food. And that's kind of how I've um, done my own investigation. So Native Food is, is very uh, colorful. And to me, it's like a graphic novel, you know, where all of the ingredients, the plants, the animals, they're alive and they're talking just like in our oral stories and our, in our creation stories. Things have not changed, you know. To me, that's how I see it, you know. Cool. I love that. Thank you so much for breaking that down. And it also made me curious uh, about your journey, right? So, like, you grew up on the Raz. I love the story about you and your mom and your little red wagon <laughs> selling already an entrepreneurial. Yeah. <laughs> and just sort of, like, what you've experienced. You know, went to cooking school. You had different job experiences. And back then, as you were saying, you were describing a little bit about how we didn't have social media. You know, it was old school typewriter, you know, um, you know, uh, I don't even think cell phones were then it was like, you know, pagers, um, anyway, dating ourselves, but during that time, you know, and being persistent, because one thing that I appreciate about you, Sharon was sort of like this vision, you had this vision of the native cuisine and what does that mean? What does that look like? You know, you had this desire of finding another native chef to to um, learn from at the same time you were experiencing other opportunities and you know that's a whole gaffling of experiences that you've you know went through to get to this point how did you stay on track because 
life is distracting, right? We get distracted and there are things that we all desire and want and and strive for and then we get derailed. We um, lose focus. How did you stay so persistent? How did you stay passionate about this knowing that there was so many things moving around you and you, it sounds like also you were, you were, I heard you say, like, I've been trying to figure out where, you know, where to go. And when you finally figured that out, like, I want to do the food, you went there and you went on that path. So just sort of staying on track, staying on path, what helped you to do that? Well, I think a lot of that had to do with my youth staying on track this long. It's, um, um, you know, in, in Native communities, we grow up with few options and few opportunities sometimes. And uh, one of the, the outlets or the windows to the world that I had was skateboarding and music. So as a skateboarder, I, I really took, you know, now later on in life, I, I look back on my life as a young skater. See, I started skating when I was like seven years old, and it's been there my entire life. And, and I really philosophically and spiritually take a lot from that. Skateboarding was one of my first creative loves. And then, you know, cooking was probably first, but then skateboarding came in as I was a little older, just a couple of years older, you know what I mean? And, and so if I, my earliest cooking memories are like from 1985 in preschool. And then I start skateboarding two years later, like I'm in second grade or, you know, seven or eight years old. It's been quite a long time. And the trait that, that, that I take from skateboarding is tenacity and never giving up. And just this kind of really um, aggressive attitude towards wanting to learn something. In skateboarding, we try a trick over and over and over multiple times. Sometimes we we hurt ourselves. Sometimes we fall. Or not sometimes. We always fall. You know, we, we're always falling. We're always getting scraped up. We sprain our, sprain our joints and our ankles and break bones. But in the culture of skateboarding, it's kind of like that saying, real recognize real. And and. You know, you're building your skills and they're all layered on other skills. They're all layered on how much you're willing to put into it. Then the creativity of like punk rock music and the rebellious nature of punk rock music and hip hop, just feeling connected to something much larger than yourself that 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 is um, outside my reservation reality and my family reality. And so I really took a lot of that energy and that passion and drive See, like I I lived skateboarding, I read all the magazines, I wore all the clothes, I mean, you know, if I could have eaten it, I would have eaten it, you know what I mean? Like, I, I lived, lived, dreamed, talked, and lived it. So when I became a professional cook, I just took that energy and applied that to professional cooking. When I got into cooking school, the only other time I had, you know, the, the chefs and the, the curriculum were talking about they were using terms like master chefs or someday, you know, you, with, with enough time and discipline and training, you could, you could become a master, you know? And to me, the only other places I had heard that was like fine art, like painting or carpentry or dance or Kung Fu, you know, martial arts. And to me, that was pretty cool because as a kid, I was all into anime and appreciated the martial arts and the philosophies that came with that. And, I was like, man, that's pretty, that's pretty dope. You could become a master chef. I'm like, seriously. So that, that kind of idea, I just kind of thought it was cool as hell. And like, I could give my whole life to this and then never be a master, but strive to be a master. I was like, that's good. I'm going to go for that. You know, like, this is so cool. Uh, I, I, I dig it. And then I'm going to, I'm going to be native food. So with all the distractions in life, unfortunately, I feel like 
I, I, I'm able to thrive under pressure and do well. I realize that I'm really organized and my do well in structured environments. All this stuff I learned just from cooking and trusting the process of, of tutelage of other chefs. I've worked for many great chefs and I've worked for many that were not so great. But I think all along the way is just disciplining ourselves to find the lesson in every experience that we get. That's kind of how I, I decided not to really give up and to stay the course. Plus, you know, my parents, my dad was a Marine Corps sergeant. My mom, she was she's a leader in, in our tribal community. And, and I would always hear words like tenacity and commitment and the strength of our people just in casual conversation with my parents. I really value that too. Like I value our indigenous strength and our indigenous power. And, you know, I you know began to live it in my own way too. So I really wanted to weave that into the narrative of, of how I was going to eventually give my life to cooking and food and all that stuff. So there's a, a, a lot of layers into the tapestry of, of why I never gave up. And like you said, trying to find out where I was going to go with it. Most of the time, I still feel like, where am I going to go with it? You know, like, mm. I still feel like I'm at the beginning because it's such a vast universe. Mm. And that's what is so cool about foodways and the food work is that it, it, it provides so many opportunities and the, the field is right, wide open right now. So that's why it's, it's, it's an exciting time. That's why I haven't given up. I love that. I love how you use the skateboarding analogy in that just really emphasizing we all fall. Like every single one mm-hmm. of us have fallen. We have scraped. We have broken bones. You know, we've broken spirits. You know, we've we've been through... Everyone has been through hard times and what matters is getting back up, right? Getting back up and healing and then going forward, you know, healing and going forward. And uh, I appreciate that and also just appreciate how you're also lifting up sort of your relatives and how they have also modeled and talked, you know. So again, it just, I think, confirms and underscores the importance of really sort of observing and listening and seeing how our elders, our relatives, our friends model those experiences where we've learned. You know, I don't want to say failures, but in the sense of I I feel like those are learning moments. When something doesn't go the way we planned, it's an opportunity to figure out what, what happened and reflect and learn and build on that. So thank you for, yeah, for sharing I, I, that. Yeah, I certainly agree. And, you know, um, uh, I, I definitely want to note that it is okay to say failures because, you know, in, in life when, when we fail, those are, those are the opportunities to have the most profound learning experiences. When, when our ancestors talk about humility and our family members talk about humility, we're usually referring to moments of failure or where we've been put in our place by the universe, you know, like shown how small and insignificant we are. And we feel that deep sense of vulnerability. And then we come back from it. We, we, we decide that, you know, we, we deserve more and we want better and we're going to try again, you know, mm-hmm. coming back from heartbreak and loss, you know, that's, mm-hmm. that's what we do as native peoples. And we find the humor and the joy along the way, you know, mm-hmm. it's, it's just a really cool trait. So yeah. it's cool to say failure, you know? <laughs> okay. Okay. You, you sold me there. <laughs> um, so yeah, I, it, it, 
this makes me actually want to transition a little bit to the the healing of food, like food as a healing agent. And I know that you've shared before about what native food has done for you. And you've also talked a little bit about how food is spiritual and has this cosmic story. I just like, oh, that sounds so cool. So talk a little bit about how native foods, how has that healed you? What has it done for you? How is it spiritual? What does that all mean to you as you had described it before? Certainly, and and I appreciate going this direction. There's a saying in a recovery circle that um, a drowning man will grab a sword. And another one of my favorite phrases in recovery circles is, uh, when the student is ready, a teacher will appear. And that's what Native Foods was for me. Um, You see, ever since I was a young kid, I've struggled with chemical dependency. And as I became an adult, it it turned into addiction. And throughout my entire path as a professional cook, you know, the life of punk rock, hip hop, skateboarding, all those things combined, I didn't really realize. And and this is not to put a, a shadow on skateboarding, punk rock or professional cooking. What I know now, looking back, is that I was embodying so many colonial mindsets. You know, I didn't. I had no idea what the colonization process of North America, of Turtle Island did to people and how it trickled all the way into the individual. I didn't realize that I was living in a colonized and colonial reality inside of a system in a profession that was not designed to allow me to succeed as a native person of color in America. It was through the foodways that I began to understand and learn these things. So when, when I speak in academic or professional terms, it, it's been food that's been my greatest teachers. And um, all along the way, um, see, as a young, impressionable cook and a rebellious skater kid and line cook, and then wanting to get some quality training and obtaining some quality training in a really old-school, classical French restaurant that was one of the best in the country during the time I worked there, and realizing the the ability to, to cook well and be in native ingredients in a five-star, five-diamond French restaurant, but there was no acknowledgement or discussion about the roots of these foods. They just increased that fire to want to do something with native foods. It was when, like when I got to that five-star, five-diamond place when I was 22 years old, and I didn't think I would get there until I was in my mid-30s. It was like the food were happy I was there. That's kind of the way I can put it. There was salmon on the fish station. There was buffalo on my station, the meat station. I saw, you know, corned beans, squash, chocolate, chili, you know, all these things that I had by then learned were native foods or indigenous foods. They were being used at that high level. So getting to that, that place, it demystified cuisine for me. Up until then, fine dining and the French area that I was interested in studying because I wanted to be classically based, right? If I was going to be a professional cook, you know, or like, you know, if I was going to be a professional, if I was going to be in the fine arts, I wanted a classical foundation. So that's why I sought out French training. And the best place in my area was Mary Lane's at the Phoenicians. I applied over and over and over for like four years or so when I finally got in. And when I got in, I saw Native Foods there. That was a stamp of approval. The feeling in my heart when I saw salmon, buffalo, and all those other ingredients and the many that I would work with during my time, it just, it was like they were telling me, we're, we're here, we're waiting, go for it. The potential is there. 
So even throughout all that time, I was still struggling with chemical dependency and drug abuse and partying too much. So I didn't really understand that my mind and my thinking were essentially colonized. I was seeing the world through, yes, the classical lens, and I was getting classical training, but I was also experiencing a lot of racism in kitchens. I was also experiencing a lot of uh, misconceptions and stereotypes as a young person coming up in kitchens. Because the kitchen culture in the, the end of the 90s and the early 2000s was very abrasive and toxic and abusive. So some of those horror stories that have become kind of stereotypes and common knowledge, I experienced a lot of that. And so my only recourse, if I was going to survive that, was to develop a real tough skin. And part of my coping mechanism was, was getting high and using drugs and drinking to fit in. But I realized, obvious the whole pathway, that I was failing a lot, burning more bridges possibly, I don't know. But somehow the food and the technical aspect of professional cooking was always there. I felt like I could, I, I, no matter how far, how far things uh, had gone or if I, no matter how bad life would get, people needed to eat and I could cook. So I had a job somewhere, you know, I was like my kind of last, that was like my last recourse. It was like, well, my only recourse. In late 2009, my father, Vincent Craig, was diagnosed with cancer. And in May 2010, he passed away. That period of time was very traumatic and uh, hurtful for me because there's nothing sacred that I believed in. No, no, no ceremonies, no songs, no organized religion. The multitude of people that came to visit my dad and, and pray, offer prayers and, and good things Nothing, not even my own faith in any of that could save him. And that was a very challenging moment in my life. And uh, my dad was also in sobriety. Uh, he was 24 years sober when he died. Uh, we would have these discussions that I, I suspected but wasn't for sure, but they were end-of-life um, discussions about sobriety. He would say, you know, Sonny, this, this is not for us. This is not for our people. But my dad was always there as a support. And when he, when he, when he passed away, there was this massive void that I realized was there. And I just had, it's like that, again, back to that saying, a drowning man will grab a sword. And, um, when he was gone, um, I almost drank myself to death because, you know, it's not to make an excuse or any of that. I just, that's just what I did. And it wasn't until I felt, you know, mortality. I felt death creeping into my bones and my spirit that it was coming that I decided to stop. And that was after my dad was gone and experiencing a lot of different loss and failure that well, finally sobriety was there and I was ready. That thing that you hear people like Anthony Kiedis or Flea or Eric Clapton, musicians and artists, you hear them say I was sick and tired of being sick and tired. Well, I finally got that. I finally understood it. I was finally at that point where I'm terrified to live, but I'm, I'm scared to die, you know? Finally just kind of surrendered. And what would happen is, is that the food ways, the cooking, the concept of family, a choice, and a lot of these recovery themes, they would really begin to become real. Um, in recovery, we say trust the process. Uh, in recovery, what I learned is that the food ways, would provide some of the spiritual components that I was missing in my life. 
with the clarity of sobriety and how when you get sober, your heart softens, but your spirit gets stronger. And I was open to more messages that the foods were communicating to me. You know, it's kind of like the foods were, they were playful and they were saying like, eat my shit. You know, they were saying, come here, you know, we got something to tell you now. Are you ready? Mm-hmm. They were saying, hey, you know, they were telling me these funny jokes about themselves, you know, and, and it was neat to me. That's why I say it's like a graphic novel because um, when I got sober, it was in 2011, and I I just began working at the Sunrise Ski Resort in our mountains in, in White River, Arizona, the, the ski resort that our tribe owned. All my life, my dad had been there to support, and when he was gone, I realized that, you know, I needed to, to just grow up, not just on the calendar, but emotionally. And so the foodways, the mountains, just basically deciding, like, you know what, I, I deserve to be happy. You know, like, and then going for it. That moment was like I had been trying to ollie down a set of 10 stairs over and over and over. And I finally just slammed and I was on the ground hurting. And then that moment of saying, like, I deserve to be happy. I was like, all right, picking up my board and go for it, going for it again. You know, like, and that was the new trick. You know, like, I deserve to be happy and I'm going to go for it. And so the native foods, sobriety, loss and trauma and resiliency brought me to the doorstep of decolonization because prior to that I had no idea what that meant it was just this big word that a few academics were throwing around on MySpace that I saw you know and I didn't know what it meant so and then following the food it brought me to anthropology it brought me to archaeology it brought me to nutrition it brought me to you know ceremony it brought me to a lot of really profound life changes that as I'm trusting the process of life and recovery were beginning to transform my spirit and not in any way where it was like superstitious or mystical or, or any of that kind of stuff. It was just like a real tactile, less real tactile lesson in hands-on humility that began to just like open up my heart and it began to say something different. Like, during this, this not, I would end up staying at Sunrise for almost nine years. And during that time, I turned down a lot of opportunities to go to um, other cities and do work and open up restaurants or whatever. But my experiences with failure and sobriety and, and, and loss and also really wanting to be a, a committed and disciplined chef, like I was going to be a, a professional skater, you know, wanting to just be really, really have a foundation of skill and technique and, and strength. I wanted that same foundation in, in cooking. You know, I wanted whatever I was going to cook to be legitimately representing us as Native people. You know, my grandma Nancy, my grandpa Bob, my grandma, my grandpa Joseph Ivan, my, my dad Vincent, my mom Marini, my brother Dustin, you know, my brother, my brother Shiloh. I wanted us to see something on the plate and be like, hell yeah, that's Native. <laughs> you know, like, and and I couldn't do that if I would have gone to Chicago or New York or D.C. or San Fran. I, I felt like the way that Native foods were filling up my spirit and building my skills, I w- if I would have gone to a larger city and set up shop, I would just be cooking for a bunch of white people. You know, <laughs> like I would be cooking for the colonizers. You know, I'd be like a puppet doing a dance. So it would be more performative than restorative. And so I just decided that, I'm going to stay in the mountains as long as I can, and, and maybe something will, will open up. 
sure enough, it did. And, and I, I uh, began working at our, our community's um, treatment center called the Rainbow Treatment Center. And there I'm able to kind of utilize those, the physical aspect of skill building, the nutritional side, the, and then also, but, you know, talk about indigenous food sovereignty and this really peaceful rebellion that's really radical to use food waste, you know, to help us heal ourselves. Cause I'm, I'm really pleased that, that this, it transforms in this way in my life because addiction is life and death. For the listeners that have someone in their life that is affected by it, it is real and it is very terrifying. And there's no, there's, there should be no judgment on the person struggling with addiction, you know? All of the addiction is just the behavioral symptom of deeper spiritual wounds and traumas that usually didn't, that weren't our fault that began in our youth. So combining food and combining indigeneity and, and, you know, farming and gathering wild food, that's how it encapsulates spirituality for me. I, I feel like as someone that, that appreciates uh, legitimacy and authenticity and craftsmanship, and hard work, I feel like native foods provide that. When you plant corn and you find the humility to sing to your corn, you know, in your own native language, that is the path straight back to being indigenous, you know? There's no legal policy discussion. There's no decolonization strategies implement. There's no, you know, definition of what indigeneity means and what reclamation means. You know, there's no protocol. You're just straight back to being indigenous when you sing to your corn or you, you're barbecuing corn or you're building a sweat lodge those food related practices are the path straight back and to me that's how it encapsulates spirituality and it's it's different but individual by individual and it shouldn't it, it it's um i'm not saying it's an instant cure because you know I, my sobriety is nine and a half years now and i feel like i'm still a baby and my cooking career is 20 years now you know so it's definitely not an instant thing, but it's something definitely, definitely, definitely worth pursuing and giving yourself to. Mm. Yes, 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 to to your accomplishments. And Nijone, Nijone, Nijone. So beautiful, everything that you've said. And I appreciate you just sharing your vulnerability and what you've experienced and also just recognizing that it's magical to some degree in the sense of like having these plants talk to you <laughs> and seeing how it heals your the whole in your heart, right? The spirit that you have. There's three more things real quickly, uh, three questions, but one that I wanted you to sort of, I loved how you went back and talked about, you know, singing to the corn, something as simple as that, you know, and so uh, in, in terms of decolonization, we hear that word a lot now. Like it's been like, you know, the past two years, people have been really talking about that. And you started to kind of go in that direction about food. So, you know, not it being so much as an academic process. So um, what other sort of ways can folks see that in how they show up? Yeah, thank you for that. To, to the listeners that are curious, you know, like, like I mentioned earlier, when I, when, I sit, when I use these large academic terms or professional terms, you know, I came to them through the food waste. And it, it, the experiences, to me, I needed like a definition or a word to put on the experiences I was having. And I was realizing it was decolonizing, I was realizing I was practicing indigeneity. But I also want to stress that 
in order to decolonize or live out our indigeneity is you don't need to have a college degree. You don't need to be a highly educated person. You just need to be a student of the experience of being Native. If you can put on the lens of anthropology, right? They look at the world through everything that you do as a Native person is a small or big anthropological occurrence. And anthropology is just a real objective study of culture, right? People's culture. And so whatever you do with your passions and your drives and whatever you like to do, with whatever your art form is, when you do that and you put on the lens of anthropology, you can see that it's a strong possibility almost anything you do may or may not have ever happened before for our people in this context. So if you're a carpenter and you start a carpentry program that integrates philosophy and discussion of indigenous woodworking, you're doing something that has the potential to have a lasting impact. Um, and I, I say this, I'm using that analogy because when we look back, a lot of our only resources in this contemporary Native experience are anthropological books and historical books. When we look back and read about ourselves in these collection of these works, we, we are seeing ourselves through the lens of non-Native people that wrote about us. And all they did was go into Native communities and talk to people and ask, hey, who's the hunters? Hey, who's the fishers? Who are the artists? Who makes these baskets? And community members would point out the people that were doing these things. And that's exactly the same thing that is happening right now. So if you can kind of like open up the paradigm of whatever it is that you love to do, whether it's producing music and you're a rap artist or a punk rock Native person, or you're a professional cook or a lawyer or a neurosurgeon, for our people in this generation, those are historical occurrences, big or small, and allow yourself that power. And your indigenous experience is valid. You as an indigenous person have a valid experience of everything you're experiencing, from the pandemic to the insurgency at Washington, D.C., to food insecurity, to food sovereignty. Everything you're experiencing, when you absorb it and you document it and you, you speak on it, your voice is powerful. So that that's kind of what I mean when when I say that um, um, you can you can turn it into an opportunity, basically. Mm -hmm. So I hope that kind of answers that question. Yes, it does. Thank you so much. What are you excited about mm -hmm. post COVID um, future? What's the? I know earlier you had said it, it's still unfolding for you, right? And so, but I'm also curious about what have you been thinking about. Um, in terms of the next chapter or the next series or however you want to describe that? Oh, well, I really hope that we continue to utilize telehealth across Native America. Uh, we've gotten so accustomed to Zoom and so many different professions that I hope that we continue to maintain that because a lot of us under these pressures have gotten creative to maintain our, our, our livelihoods, but also we built new relationships like you and I got connected through through a telehealth session, you know what I mean, that I did. So building, continuing to maintain these networks that the pandemic uh, produced for us, it's like that thing, pressure makes diamonds, you know. I feel like we have the opportunity to come out more resilient and uh, with some shared shared experiences. And then also in terms of Native foods, I, I realized that across Native America, many, many people were growing more gardens. Many people were cooking more. Uh, many people experience for themselves the power of native foods that I was that I was attempting to de to describe, you know, so 
from coast to coast in America and around the world. So, and then if all those things were packed into native food, indigenous food, then the world was experiencing a transformation in a big or small way with, with native foods and indigenous cultivars. So I'm excited about that. And if, if, if I can keep that, um, keep talking about that idea and keep sharing that and seeing the other practitioners that are out there, I feel like we're going to be able to leverage our indigenous scientific ancestral intelligence in creating pathways forward, you know? So yeah. we definitely experience a lot of loss, but, you know, as natives, we'll transform that, that into power, you know? Yeah, we will. And I know you'll be a big part of that. Mm-hmm. So check this out. Listen to this. Hold on. Yeah. Play something, right? Yeah. You know what I want to hear, right? What you want to hear? I want to hear that Wu-Tang joint. Wu-Tang again? <laughs> okay, so tell us about Wu-Tang Wednesday. <laughs> <laughs> Hell yeah, okay. Um, well, uh, on Instagram, I do a Wu-Tang Wednesday. And um, Wu-Tang Wednesday is nothing new. People have been doing it globally since forever, I guess, you know. And But I, I, uh, I started it as a self-care project, you know, I, in quarantine and in um, isolation. I just uh, was going through um, a lot of changes with the pandemic and a lot of changes in life. So I just decided to do uh, Instagram Live. My Wu-Tang Wednesday is a, is a creative space where I just cook. You know, I, I, I just cook. I turn on some old school Wu-Tang music and I just cook some native food. Sometimes I talk specifically native food. Sometimes I'm talking other techniques like I've done pasta, I've done ramen, I've done pho, I've done uh, acorn stew, I've done fry bread. I made Wu-Tang fry bread, you know, <laughs> like, it, I've done Pasoli. It, it, I'm up to 19. This week will be 20 Wu-Tang Wednesdays. And as I got past 16, I was like, man, I should just go to 36 for 36 chambers. So it, it started out as a real simple self-care project, but it's grown. It's got its own small following, I think. And I see returning faces on the live when I do it. And it's cool. You know, I, I dig it. And that's, the Wu-Tang Wednesday is just me not trying to like, you know, I got no Peter Pan syndrome. You know what I mean? I'm not trying to stay young forever. <laughs> it's just, it's just like, I realized that with, with, with age and experience, I can still do the things that I loved in my youth, but now I can do them with more, more depth. You know, mm. I can do them with more, with more understanding. Mm-hmm. I can translate the angst of the lyrics that I hear in the hip hop mm-hmm. from not just Wu-Tang Clan, but all the golden era hip hop that I love and the punk rock music that I can love. I can hear the angst and the heartbreak and the trauma, and I can understand the political geographical state of, you know, classical 1990s golden era hip hop in the context of New York City in that time and the racial discrimination and how the system is not set up for people of color and where that's coming from. So I can break it down in a whole different way and use food and talk about skateboarding and just, you know, so I can weave a much deeper narrative. And I guess the takeaway from that is if there was something you loved when you were a kid or something that you were good at, whether it was scientific or musical or artistic or martial arts or dance or something, we all had something that was our first love that didn't involve romantic love. It was something that we valued. You know, I say pick it up and do it again, especially now, because that creative outlet is actually healing. That that creative energy, like you can even hear the change in my voice right now because I, I love it so much. You know, it's cool. And now, later on in life, when you pick it back up and you dust it off and you shine it up, you realize why you fell in love with it. 
and you'll probably have a much deeper understanding or appreciation for it. And you'll be able to do it with more skill, you know, and more depth. And that's what I kind of realized this Wu-Tang Wednesday has become for me. It's like, wow, man, that's cool, you know? Like I said, I'm not trying to like, you know, I got no Peter Pan issues, but it's just, <laughs> it's just, it's just legitimate to me. It's cool. It's, yeah. it's going to stand the test of time, you know? If the Wu-Tang Clan is going to be there in 30 years and they're all old in their 50s now, you know, it's cool, man. <laughs> so I dig it. And, you know, I'm still on the path. I'm still on the path of wanting to be creative and have fun and, and just be a native person that, that um, living in this world, doing something that, that I love, you know, so that, that's, 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 that's what we think Wednesday. So thanks for doing that little snippet. That was dope. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, and 50 is not that all my friend. <laughs> That's the new 30. So, all right. So I, yes, I'm a follower on Wu-Tang Wednesday. And the only thing that I would say that I'm sad about is that we can't taste what you're cooking. It's like, oh man. Um, but I, I appreciate that. And I encourage you all to check it out. It's a lot of fun. And, um, and it's he's, he breaks it down and even gives tips about like you know what kind of knives you should get or invest in. So check it out. On, on I'll definitely put it in the links so you all can find him on Instagram. So Mr. Chef uh, Nephi, any final words to the listeners as we wrap up? I just want to you know thank you and the listeners for your time. I know there's uh, many many things that require our attention in life from from kids to work to our own health and our own self-care. So thank you for going on this journey with me. Just want to continue to validate your experience as a Native person that whatever you're struggling with, it's okay to to, to tune out and turn off and take care of yourself. Um, one of my recovery mentors would tell me, like, man, you ain't going to hurt nobody by taking care of yourself. And that has stayed with me for, you know, about 15 years now. So, you know, be kind to yourself as you travel into your memories be nice to yourself when you encounter your younger you and keep doing the work, the, the deep, deep work. I saw a meme recently that said, like, self-care is not just a spa retreat and exercise. Self-care requires us to be disciplined and do the, the journey within to unravel the trauma and to really face, make some really serious life changes and self-examination. So look at our recovery after the pandemic as the art of self-mastery. It doesn't just have to be substance abuse related. The pandemic itself is a traumatic experience globally. Look at it as the art of self-mastery. Look into emotional intelligence and cook with your kids. Offer them the skills and the experience that you value, the lessons that are in the food, and do the storytelling. I, I like to say when you're cooking, you season with other ingredients, but you can also season the experience with humor. Because every time you cook, you're building new memories and new neurological pathways in our brain. It's a very powerful thing. Have fun doing it and never give up. Keep keep pushing forward. You know, I'm always open to collaborating and doing cool stuff with people out there. So look me up. Yeah, thank you. You all heard it from Chef Nephi. You all deserve happiness. Be kind to yourself. Never give up. Thank you so much. I appreciate you in all ways, and I look forward to a new friendship as we go forward. So thank you all listeners for joining us, and have a blessed, beautiful day. Thank you. Thank you.